Hey, Ella. Yes. Why'd the snowman get excited? I don't know. Because the snowblower was coming down the street. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Murder and Mystery in the South. I'm Justin Case. I am Ella Blue, and we are joined again today with Slick Rick, our producer. How are you guys doing? Yes, he exists. So what are we talking about today, Ella? (laughs) We're talking about the 1964 Freedom Summer Murders. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Back to the flower power days. That's right. All it's right. going to be groovy. Well, let's get into it. So Michael Schwerner, that's S-C-H-W-E-R-N-E-R, since I have a hard time pronouncing some things with this southern accent, and James Cheney worked for Congress of Racial Equality, which was called CORE in nearby Meridian, Mississippi. Andrew Goodman was one of the hundreds of college students from across the country who volunteered to work on voter registration, education, and civil rights as part of the 1964 Mississippi Summer Project. The three men believed their work was necessary, but also dangerous. Ku Klux Klan membership in Mississippi was soaring in 1964, with membership reaching more than 10,000 people. Just in Mississippi. Jeez. Yeah. The Klan was prepared to use violence to fight the civil rights movement. And on April 24th, the group offered a demonstration of its power, staging 61 simultaneous cross burnings throughout the state. That's a lot of whites. Yeah. Hate for the sake of hate. Exactly. Over the course of the summer of 1964, members of the Klan burned 20 black Mississippi churches. On June 16th, Klan members targeted Neshoba County's Mount Zion Baptist Church, where Schroener had spent time working. Before burning the church, the Klan severely beat several people who had been attending a meeting there. Schroener, however, was not there that day. He had gone to Oxford, Ohio, to train a group of Freedom Summer volunteers. Upon returning to Mississippi, Schroener, Goodman, and Cheney visited the charred remains of Mount Zion. On the drive back to Meridian, their station wagon, known to law enforcement as a Corps vehicle, was stopped and police arrested all three. Cheney, who had been driving, was charged with speeding while Schwerner and Goodman were held for investigation. Neshoba County Sheriff's Deputy Cecil Price escorted them to Philadelphia Jail around 4 p.m. Crooked cops back then, too. Yes. Despite the fact that all fines um, for speeding were posted on the wall. Price said the three men would have to remain in jail until the judge arrived to process the fine. Schwerner asked to make a phone call, but Price denied the request and left the jail. In Meridian, court staff began calling nearby jails and police stations inquiring about the three men. It was their standard procedure when organizers failed to return on time. Thank God for cell phones now, huh? It'd be helpful for them back then. Yeah. Minnie Herring, the jailer's wife, claimed that there were no phone calls on June 21st, but core records show a call to the Philadelphia jail around 5.30 p.m. Price returned a little after 10, collected Cheney's speeding fine, with no justice of the peace, no judge, nothing, just came back and collected it, and then told the three men to get out of the county. They were never seen alive again. What a dirtbag. In 1964, Mississippi was the only state without a central FBI office. But on June 22nd, agents from the New Orleans office arrived to begin the kidnapping investigation. Good. 
um, since passing in 1932, the Lindbergh Law, remember the baby? Mm-hmm. Okay. Brought kidnapping cases under federal jurisdiction. As it should be. Exactly. More agents would come to Mississippi over the next several days, ultimately totaling more than 200. On June 23rd, investigators found the core station wagon still smoldering from an attempt to destroy evidence. Mm. Now the focus shifted from rescue to recovery of the men's bodies. The case was drawing national attention in part because Schwerner and Goodman were both white northerners. Mickey Schwerner's wife, Rita, who was also a core worker, tried to convert that attention to the overlooked victims of the racial violence. The slaying of a Negro in Mississippi is not news. It's only because my husband and Andrew Goodman were white that the national alarm has been sounded, she told reporters during the search. Well, good for her for trying to turn the focus. Yeah. Throughout July, investigators combed through the woods, fields, swamps, and rivers of Mississippi, ultimately finding the remains of eight African-American men. Two were identified as Harry D. and Charles Moore, college students who had been kidnapped, beaten, and murdered in May 1964. Another corpse was wearing a core T-shirt, and I couldn't find anything, any, any information at all about the other Okay, five okay. I know this is a very serious one, but I just have to stop for one second and point out the fact that the guy's name was Harry D. Yeah. <laughs> Bless it. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Back to serious. So finally, after six weeks of searching, a tip from an informant, later identified as a Mississippi Highway Patrol officer, Maynard King, sent investigators to a small dam on the old Jolly Farm outside Philadelphia. It was there the FBI, that the FBI uncovered the bodies of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman on August 4th. So they found eight bodies while looking for these three. Yes. Eight bodies that weren't these three. Exactly. Good Lord. I mean, you know, Mississippi, especially. Now don't get then. me started on Mississippi. Yeah. All the sundown towns. It's, it's, I mean, we could do probably a whole season on just sundown towns. Oh, absolutely. Throughout the fall of 1964, the FBI continued investigating the case. State and local law enforcement did not pursue it. Oh. Claiming insufficient evidence. Yeah. No bodies. How much more? What more evidence do you need to start an investigation on it? Right. Good well, lord. They're all in cahoots. Mm-hmm. And because the murder was a crime covered by state law, the federal government could not bring charges. Instead, on December fourth, the Justice Department charged twenty-one men with conspiring to violate Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman's civil rights. Hell, back then. Half the clan members were probably the local state police. Exactly. Prosecutors brought the charges before a federal grand jury, which indicted 18 men in January of 1965. The following month, presiding judge William Harold Cox dismissed the charges against the majority of the defendants, maintaining that the law applied only to law enforcement. Well, at least he fits his name. Harry D. Wilcox. He's a cock. No, it's William Harold Cox. Yeah. He said Harry D. Wilcox. Cox. That's short for his name. I don't... Don't try to play me here. I know how name do. The prosecution... (laughs) You You know how name do, huh? 
Yep. English goodly. So the prosecution appealed, and in 1966, the Supreme Court reinstated the charges, ruling that the law applied to both law enforcement officials and civilians. Damn right. Well, yeah, I mean, the law should apply to everybody. The law. Exactly. Nobody should be above it. In February 1967, another federal grand jury indicted the men once again, and in October, the trial began in Judge Cox's courtroom. Same judge. Cox was known as a segregationist. He had been the subject of an unsuccessful impeachment attempt after describing African-American witnesses in an earlier case as chimpanzees. But on the first day of the trial, when the defense attorney asked a witness whether Schwerner was part of a plot to rape white women during the summer of 1964, Cox called the question improper, stating, I'm not going to allow a farce to be made on this trial. Says the dirtbag that dismissed the charges. Yeah. Prosecutor John Doerr later called Cox's response to the rape question a turning point in the fight for justice. If there had been any feeling in the courtroom that the defendants were invulnerable to conviction in Mississippi, this indictment dispelled it completely. Doerr said afterwards, Cox made it clear he was taking the trial seriously. That made the jurors stop and think. If Judge Cox is taking this stand we'd better meet our responsibility as well. Yeah, if this racist judge has woke up, maybe we should too. Exactly. Got it. As the trial proceeded, the prosecution read the 1964 confessions of Horace Dole Barnett and James Jordan, which described what happened on the night of June 21st. Horace Dole Barnett. Doyle. If that doesn't sound like Trailer Park Dumb and Dumber... Those two names. I'd you go to the Lord. Yeah, surprise, surprise, those two were involved. After leaving Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in the Philadelphia jail, Cecil Price contacted Edgar Ray Killen, one of the leaders of the local KKK, who was also a Baptist minister. I think I know who did it. Killen directed Klan members together in Philadelphia that evening. When two cars filled with Klansmen headed for the outskirts of Philadelphia, Price released the civil rights workers from jail and ordered them back to head back to Meridian. He then joined the pursuit of the core station wagon. Well, that's one of them times you pray for a fiery car crash. Yeah. Two station wagons full of Klansmen? Yeah. Shit. Making, making Chrysler look bad. Yeah. Catching up with three civil rights workers on Highway 19, the Klansmen forced the men into their cars and drove all of the vehicles to Rock Cut Road, a nearby side street. There, James Jordan shot Cheney, and Wayne Roberts shot Schwerner and Goodman. The killers loaded the bodies into the core station wagon and drove them to the old Jolly Farm, where they used a bulldozer to bury the bodies in the earthen dam. The jury found seven of the defendants guilty. Price, Barnett, Roberts, James Arledge, Billy Wayne Posey, James Snowden, and Samuel Bowers in the Imperial Wizards of Mississippi's White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Bowers had a particular antipathy towards Schwerner and had begun planning his murder in the spring of 1964. In three cases, the jury failed to reach a verdict. One juror refused to convict a minister and Killen walked free. After unsuccessful appeals, 
the convicted men entered prison early in 1970. Each had received a sentence of between three and ten years, but ultimately none would serve more than six years behind bars. That's ridiculous. That's insane. They all should have met the firing squad. That's yeah. my thoughts, too. In 1998, Jerry Mitchell, an investigative reporter for the Jackson Clarion Ledger, published excerpts from the 1984 interview with Samuel Bowers in which he spoke openly about the killings. Quote, I was quite delighted to be convicted and have the main instigator of the entire affair walk out of the courtroom a free man, which everybody, including the trial judge and the prosecutors and everybody else knows that that happened. End quote. Mitchell's reporting established that Bauer, Bowers was referring to killing. The interview, which is now available to the public, was part of an oral history project to be held by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and sealed until Bowers' death. It's just disgusting. Yeah. Mitchell, whose work on unsolved cases of the civil rights era, earned him a 2009 MacArthur Fellowship. Never, He never revealed how he got access to the interview. Mm-hmm. In 1999, Mississippi Attorney General Michael Moore announced that the state would reopen the case. Good. At his request, the FBI turned over more than 40,000 pages related to the initial investigation. In January 2005, a grand jury charged Edgar Ray Killen with murder. Although several of the other conspirators were still alive at the time, the grand jury did not find sufficient evidence to indict anyone else. The trial drew national news coverage. Members of the victims' families were present at the trial, some as witnesses and some as observers. Ultimately, the jury found insufficient evidence for a murder conviction, but did find Killen guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter, and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Uh, at least he went to prison. Mm-hmm. That dirtbag deserves it. Should have seen the death penalty. Well, I agree. But that is the story of the 1964 Freedom Summer Murders. So much hate back then. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, there's so much hate now. You've got the the polar opposite now. It's Honestly, now it's our government. I think it is. I think it's between the government and the, and the media. <coughs> well, if they keep us all separated, yep. then we're too busy looking. They want everybody too busy looking at each other to see what they're doing. It might not be, nowadays, it might not be as physically hateful as it was back then, but it's just as bad. Because now, with social media, it doesn't boil over as quickly. Because back then, you didn't have a way to talk shit on people you didn't like. No, nope. you're well, right. Now you do, and you just, people just do it openly, 24-7. People that hate blindly like that are just fucking idiots. Yeah. True story. Well, guys, thank you for sitting with us again through another story i hate that it was such a bad one but i mean we are covering murder and mysteries so yeah we don't get to decide what happens all we can do is talk about it and make sure it don't happen again right keep history in people's minds maybe it will reoccur love each other all right guys y'all come back and listen to us again see you soon bye